I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, really, and it's interesting as I look back during those two incredible decades in our country that um, back, back then we really weren't that all concerned about security the way we are today. Have you, have you noticed that? For example, I, when I was growing up, none of the homes we lived in had an alarm system, none. Our cars did not have alarms on them. Uh, we would go places and there was just not this whole idea that we need to secure everything and lock everything down. Now, today, most homes and apartments have an alarm system, okay? Most cars, I don't care if you're driving a Prius or a Porsche, beep, beep, we have an alarm on our car, don't we? We even have an alarm, really, or, or a, or a uh, security system on our cell phones, you have to put in a number or show your beautiful mug, and it opens the phone to you. On our computers, we have to have a password. To do anything, we have to have a password, right? Why? Why, don't, why, why are we so focused on security today? Why is that? Well, it's, it's simple. We want to protect those things to us that are valuable. So we have alarms to protect our homes, so to protect our family, to protect our kids, to protect the stuff that we perceive are valuable. We want to protect our cars because they're something of value. We want to protect our information on our computers, on our phones, because we believe they contain valuable information. So it's amazing to me that we're so hyper-focused on security, hyper-focused on locking things down, to prevent people from stealing things from us or ripping us off, we forget many times to guard the most important thing in our life. We forget it. We kind of take it for granted. And worry slips in. And resentment slides in. And bitterness builds in our life. What's valuable? What's the most valuable thing in your life and my life? Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The most important thing that you and I can guard in our life, it's our hearts. It's our soul. And many times when we let our guard down, when we start sliding off the path that God has for us, these issues, these sins, and the consequences begin to corrupt and to flow into our hearts. So the question is, how do we guard our hearts? If our heart, if our soul is the most important thing about us as human beings, how do we guard our hearts? That's what we're going to look at today in just a few moments. But for now, we need a wardrobe explanation. I feel like we do. I normally do not wear a flowery kind of aloha shirt on Sunday, but 
I'm wearing one. I think Big Nate wore one, as well as some jeans he stole from Russell. And so <laughs> some of us here are wearing, you know, different outfits. And what we're doing is we are celebrating Splash Sunday. Splash Sunday. And that is, if you are, if you have little kids and they're in first grade, today they're promoted, they're officially in second grade. Second graders are officially third graders today. So we're promoting all of our kids in Sunday school class. And also, we are opening up and starting brand new adult classes or community groups. So in case you didn't know, in case you're not plugged into one of those classes, before we have worship at 11.11, at 9.30, we have all these kind of classes from ages zero to 100. And it's a place where the church really becomes small. You really develop a sense of community. And that's what it's all about. So if you've not splashed down, if you're not connected to a community group, a Bible study class, you can do that today. We have some special things happening after the service that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But that's what's going on with some of the clothing here today. Now, I like comfort food. I do. I grew up, my mom was great at some home cooking, and I love comfort food. I mean, every week we had fried chicken, Many times a Sunday afternoon after church, we'd go to KFC, get a barrel of chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy, biscuits, cornbread. I love it. Breakfast, waffles and butter and syrup and pancakes. Yes. Are you hungry yet? Are you hungry? But. You can't eat comfort food all the time. Though we want to. We want to binge on comfort food. I love comfort food. There's a place for comfort food. But there's also a place for broccoli and spinach and carrots. you got to have your vegetables. And guys, you know this. you got to have your protein. Right? you got to have your protein. you got to have the intake into your body for it to function well. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to our relationship with God. You know, there are a lot of churches in our country today, and all they want to do, this Bible's a big book, they want to pick and choose the verses and concepts that are simply comfort food. They just want comfort food Christianity. That's not who we are. that's, That's just not who we are at this church. There's a place for comfort. There's a place for encouragement. We all need it. The Bible's full of it. But the Bible is also giving us a lot of veggies and things we need to eat. The Bible is full of correction. The Bible is full of conviction. And God's Word is full of coaching. So it can't be all sugar and all carbs all the time. Literally and spiritually. So today I say that as a, not as a disclaimer, but as a... um, precursor, a prolegomena, if you would, to what we're going to talk about today. Because today's word is a word of conviction and a word of correction that we all need. We all need. No one's perfect. No one totally gets it. And we need God to speak to us in a way, many times, that puts us back on that right path. That convicts us, but convicts us in a way that we can have a breakthrough 
and continue to do what God has called us to do. So in that, let's open our Bibles to our book that we've been looking at, First Houstonians. It's also known as First Corinthians in your Bible, chapter number 6, verses 7 through 11. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 through 11. Let's see what trouble the Corinthians have gotten into this week. Yeah? All right. Someone's awake. Oh, by the way, it's funny. So when I first started teaching and preaching and stuff, and, you know, I, I would preach and I would watch as I'm preaching and I would see some people doze off, you know, kind of. And I remember just getting mad, like, how dare they doze off in my sermon or how dare they doze off in church. But now that, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older, I see someone dozing off, I'm thinking, man, that's great. They needed a nap. And, <laughs> and, and I said, it's funny how your perspective changes over the years. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 following, not too funny. But here we go. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not? rather be wrong. Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. You do this to your brothers and sisters. So there's a whole passage before this where they start talking about lawsuits in the church. So you had other Christians suing other Christians within this local congregation, taking them to court, taking them to a secular court to decide disputes that were happening between brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says, why are you doing that? And then he goes into a whole nother mess here. Verse 9, this is the warning. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Boom. And then verse 11, the good news. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, this is one of, I think, three passages in the New Testament where Paul lays out what I want to call a vice list. A list of sins, a list of several lifestyles that he condemns, that he says are contrary to God's will and God's way for our lives. Now, this sin list was indicative of what was going on in Corinth, though it was, it was not exhaustive. And if you can remember, the big problem in this church in Corinth and the problem uh, in general in the church today is that they let culture and not Christ set the temperature for their community. There was no temperature war between husband and wife here in Corinth. Oh no, they allowed the culture to dictate the pace and the morality, or should I say amorality, of what was going on in their church community. So Paul lays out all these things that were happening to these immature believers in Christ. He lays it out and he gives a warning. 
Now, in my life, I've, I've spent a lot of time in school. I need a lot of help, so I went and got a lot of schooling, okay? And as I look back over my, my I guess, academic career or whatever you call it, I can look back and point out certain professors and teachers that had a profound impact on my life. And matter of fact, I would say some of the most influential people in my life were teachers and coaches. There's no doubt. So if you're a teacher or a coach, let me tell you something. You have an awesome responsibility and the impact you have on people, I know it doesn't look that way right now, but I promise you the impact you're having is amazing. It's a good place for an applause for teachers right there. Thank you. So, probably my favorite teacher, at least the top three. By the way, think about who your favorite teacher is. Think about who that teacher is. Maybe write them a note or try to call them this week. But just think about who is your favorite professor or teacher, maybe top two or three. Mine would be my journalism professor in college who was named Dr. Loyal Gould. Can't make it up. Dr. Loyal Gould was a prolific reporter for the AP. He interviewed Martin Luther King Jr. He interviewed uh, John F. Kennedy. He interviewed um, uh, Richard M. Nixon. I mean, the guy, he was the only American journalist at the Nuremberg Trials. I mean, this guy had an incredible bio. I mean, it was just amazing, the stories and the people that he interviewed and the war correspondents. He, it was just, he was just a prolific person and, and a bigger-than-life personality. And I remember he would start off every lecture like this, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And then he'd go off without any notes and just lecture. He was so good. When I graduated from college, I would drive back in town to see friends. I would sneak into one of his classes just to hear him rip. And then he would end the class by saying, any questions, debates, brickbats, okay? Class dismissed. And then he'd pull out Camel on filters and start smoking. <laughs> but I remember a lot of things Dr. Gould taught me. I had two classes, two different classes with Gould and my senior year, I took a one-on-one -on -one class with him. But one of the things he said in his lectures a lot, well, he said two things. One of the things he said over and over again was this. He said, television is a vast wasteland of garbage. I mean, this is back when we barely had videos on MTV. I mean, what would he do today, Dr. Gould? He would be, he's rolling in his grave with the internet and all that. But another thing that Dr. Gould said that stuck with me, still in my mind today, is this. And this is kind of what Paul is saying to us today in this word. Dr. Gould said over and over again, what you don't know will kill you. What you don't know will kill you. And he meant that literally, and he meant that metaphorically. If you don't have the knowledge, if you don't know what you're doing or this action as a government or as an individual, it can kill you. I guess he didn't read the warning label on his cigarettes. But anyway, I never forgot that. Paul is saying this to the Corinthians. Folks, he's saying what you don't know, don't you know that the way your life, you're living your life, this lifestyle, this vice list here is killing you. It's killing you. Now, I realize that in this passage, 
He talks about a lot of sexual issues. We're going to deal with that next Sunday. But for this Sunday, let's look at the questions I see and we see flowing out of this passage. The first question he asks is this, is, is don't you know this is not the way to live? That's verse 9. Don't you know this is not the way to live? Don't you know if you're engaging in this lifestyle of immorality, this lifestyle of partying, this lifestyle of abusing your body and others, that this is going to have incredible detrimental consequences in your life? And, and by the way, that's going to be true whether you believe in God or not. If you live this way, which is outside of God's way, it's outside of God's natural law, you are going to crash. You're going to experience massive consequences to that lifestyle. It's just how it is. I read a story about a guy who was, um, or, or he got convicted of robbery. You know, his name was Gary Tyndall. And he was in court out in California. The, the, the judge was um, uh, Judge Armando Rodriguez. And so, so Gary's there, he's, he's, you know, he's in trial there for robbery, and he's standing before Judge Rodriguez, and he says before the judge, can I go to the bathroom? And the judge says, yes, you can go to the bathroom. So the guard took him, took him out of the courtroom, pulls him out. Gary goes into the restroom, the guard's out there waiting on him, and Gary has the idea Again, using what I call guy logic. Using guy logic, he's going to climb up, you know, on the toilet and the plumbing, and he goes to the ceiling, through the panel of the ceiling, and starts slithering up through the crawl space in an attempt to escape. And so he's going there, and he's sliding through the crawl space, and he's about 30 feet into it, heading south, to all of a sudden, one of the ceiling panels is weak, and boom! He crashes right to the floor, right back in front of Judge Rodriguez. <laughs> you can't make it up. The truth is stranger than fiction. We think many times, I can get away with this. I can live this way, and I'm not experiencing the consequences yet. But it doesn't matter who you are or how smart you are or dumb you are. If you slither away and try to outrun God, you can't do it. You're going to crash. And you're going to fall to the ground. He's pleading with them. Corinthians, Houstonians, friends, Romans, countrymen. This is, this is below you. This is beneath you. Don't live this way. You're going to crash. Another question flowing out of it is, you know, you know, don't you know that this also harms others around you? What you're doing, the way you're living in rebellion against God, it's going to harm others around you. Listen, sin is not a solo sport. 
that's one of the great tricks of the enemy to think us, oh, I can indulge in this vice over here or this vice there or do this. And this is just for me. This is not going to hurt anyone around me. Sin is a solo sport. No, it's not. Your sin, your rebellion, my sin, my rebellion affects others around us greatly. We could go back to the Old Testament and King David. Remember King David? A man after God's own heart. Well, he's chilling back at his house one night. The rest of his troops are out at war, but he decided to kind of pull back and not engage in battle. And what does he do? He gets on his computer, goes to www.bathsheba.com, has an affair with Bathsheba. That leads to him covering up the affair, setting up, I don't know if it's second degree murder or manslaughter, someone help me down here, uh, of, of Bathsheba's husband. That starts to affect David's children. It obviously affects his wife. It starts affecting the thousands of people that he's leading as the king. So it wasn't simply... He simply could do in isolation. Paul's saying, look at all these sins. Look at this vice list. When you're swindling, when you're robbing the money that's lost, when you're breaking trust and suing people, the friendships and family relationships that are broken and marred and hurt and damaged. When you're abusing the drugs and the alcohol, the pain and the carnage it causes for those around you. Why are you living that way? Why are you living in a way that's destructive to your own heart and to the hearts of others? He's pleading with them to wake up, to be aware. And then the positive turn, the positive question, if you would, is he says, don't you know that this is not who you are. This is not who you are. Throughout these sections in this letter to the Corinthians, he's, he's calling him, hey, my, my brother, my sister, my family, those who are deeply loved by God, those of you who've had a, an incredible born-again experience, you're a new, create, a new creature. You're, you're a son or a daughter of God. God's done a great work through you. Why are you living in this way? Why are you allowing the culture and the temptation of the culture to drag you down into this place? The, the message that he's really honing in on as far as how can we guard our heart is for us, first of all, to simply be aware. Are we aware, aware of how caving in to these temptations are hurting our heart and the hearts of those around us? Are we aware that compromising, caving into the culture is not Christ? desire for our life or for the church. Are you aware? Aware. 
And then finally, are you aware of who God has created you to be? Are you aware of this, this uh, second chance that you have, this fresh start that God's given to you? And that's verse 11 where he says, you know, you were washed. You were washed. And that's referring to baptism. You know, when someone goes down under the water and comes up out, it's symbolic of being washed and forgiven of our sins. Also, another way Paul describes it is you're justified. That means that God makes you right before him. All of your past, all of your sins have been forgiven because of what Christ did for you on the cross and the resurrection. So you're justified, you're washed. And then after that, you are sanctified. That means you're set apart. That means God's Spirit comes into your life. God's Spirit helps us deal with the ongoing drag of the flesh of our sin nature. And then God's Spirit helps us to say no to sin, yes to God. And that eventually leads us to glorification, which is the kingdom of God, which is heaven. So it's like salvation, if you would, is not a, it's not a one-off. Does that make sense? So I think whether you came from, and these are kind of two extremes, a Catholic tradition or a Baptist tradition. You know, the Catholic, well, I'm confirmed, I did this, therefore now I can go and do whatever the heck I want to do. If you're a Baptist, well, I went to camp, I got saved, I got baptized. Once saved, always saved, now I can do what the heck I want to do. I've done my religious duty. I've jumped through my Baptist hoop or I've jumped through my Catholic hoop. Paul's saying there is no Baptist or Catholic hoop. It's like jumping into a river, okay? When you go into a river, okay, just getting in the river, that's justification. That's being born again. That's being washed. But when you're in a river, it has a current. The current's going to take you somewhere. That's sanctification. That means if you really are born again, you really do have new life, you're going to be convicted of sins. And you're going to have a desire in your heart and in your life to worship God, to be involved in community. And then that's going to take you, the current, all the way down until your, your, your you know, time is up, if you would, or God calls your number and you're glorified and you're with him. But the idea that it's simply just this one little religious experience, no, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. And he's kind of asking them to question themselves. If you're living in this kind of vice list that he listed here, did you really get it? Were you really baptized? Were you, were you really washed? And if you are, then you're going to be convicted. If you are, you're going to turn away from these things. If you are, then you're going to fight by God's Spirit and by the community and others and by prayer to say, God, help me and deliver me from these things, these sins that drag me down and keep me away from you and your will. He's not talking about sinless perfectionism. In other words, once I get it, once I get saved, once I'm baptized, then I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm never going to sin. I'm never going to struggle. That's crazy. Remember the famous Romans 7 passage where Paul himself says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So he himself was caught in that, that cycle of insanity. But then he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's justification. God's Spirit is now in our heart. We cry out, Abba, Father, God, help me to overcome these things. God, I need to break through from these strongholds. 
and God helps us and God delivers us in this struggle, in this fight, if you would, against the flesh, against these strongholds, against these vices. So the difference is not, are you perfect? The difference is, are you faithful and are you battling this anti-God energy called sin that's always around us, always dragging us down? Basically, he's saying, hey, listen, you need to live up to who you already are. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. He's forgiven you. You're washed. He's given you a second chance, a third chance, a fifth chance. His spirit's in you. Man, live that way. Live out the identity you already are. This may be your struggle, but it's, it's not your, your destiny. It's not your destiny. It's not your identity. There's a godly preacher that I've learned a lot from who lived years ago. His name was Ray Steadman. And Ray was, was, was talking and, and preaching in front, in front of his congregation on this passage. And he started reading it. He started reading this, this list, the, you know, don't be deceived, none of you, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, uh, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers will inherit the kingdom. He's reading this list. And then he gets to the verse 11 where it says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. And Stadman just stopped there in the, in the middle of reading this passage. And he said, you know, it's interesting. This is what this church, this was the makeup of this church. All this list, these are things and sins that many of them either were struggling with or were currently struggling with. So he said to his congregation, he goes, now, how many of you have struggled with any of the sins on this list? Will you please stand up? And he said he waited and waited and waited. And people looked around. Awkward. Finally, an elderly lady stood. And then another person stood. And then another person stood. And finally, almost the entire congregation was standing to their feet. After the service, the pastor, Sedman, was talking to some people, and a young guy came up to him. He said, hey, I, I need to talk to you for a second. He said, this is the first time I've ever been in church. I, I just received Christ a few days ago, and I knew I had to get involved in the church, but I was afraid that I was going to fit in. And then when you ask people to stand up, I, I just freaked out. I was like, I've got to stand up in front of all these people and kind of own up to the life that I've lived. And I didn't know what to do. But then he said, once I saw all those people standing up, I realized that I was right at home. And these were my kind of people. The church is not a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. But in that healing process, we are working. We are fighting. We are seeking to God to heal all those areas and places in our hearts and lives. At all cost, with all diligence, 
guard your heart.